anybody wanting to manage a country like China would be in difficulty. That said, if you're going to exclude ordinary people from participating in the public life of their own country, it could be even more difficult. So you have to ensure that all communications are strategic, that nothing that gets out that fails to serve the purpose of reinforcing the power and status of the Communist Party. That's what it's all about. Now, it's now built the infrastructure to ensure that it has that kind of information management, the capacity for information control. Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Ricky Orpike, and joining me very shortly will be Mr. Jonathan Astro and our special guest, Mr. John Fitzgerald. We'll be discussing China and his latest book, Cadre Country. John Fitzgerald is Emeritus Professor at Swinburne University of Technology in Melbourne. He holds a PhD from ANU and held a Fulbright postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He is an award-winning author and his books include Cadre Country, How China Became the Chinese Communist Party, Big White Lie, Chinese Australians in White Australia and Awakening China. He has also authored two publications for the Australian Strategic Policy Institute about Australia-China relations. John, welcome to The New Flesh. Good to be here, Ricky and John. Thanks for having me. So, John, I've read your wonderful book, Cadre Country, and I have to ask you, are you now on a list somewhere in Beijing? Uh, I I wouldn't think so, no. Certainly the book wouldn't put me there. I've written a few other things in public media, uh, which might not have gone down well in China. Well, it's it's just surprising because you you know you you I, I, we're just fascinated to know uh, you know we'll get into some of the particulars of you know criticisms of of uh, the regime in China and whatnot. But I'm always fascinated to know you know what the fall is there any fallout from being uh, critical uh, you know from a journalist or or a scholar's perspective outside of China until fairly recently. No, but as you know, a number of Australian journalists were sort of chased out of the country or left under uh, threat of interrogation. <clears throat> and so I think many Australians are mindful of visiting China. That includes business people, academics, people wanting to go and visit their relatives. There's a, you know, a sense of, of uh, concern overhanging any visit to China by an Australian at the present time. Well, before we dive into your book, uh, what's your take on the recent agreement between China and the Solomon Islands? Uh, did Australia drop the ball here? So the, the concern seems to be around whether or not China will build a a military base or use the Solomons as a military base. I, I don't know enough about that to comment. My, my concern is slightly different, um, that Chinese police, police from China, will be stationed in the Philippines to help the Philippines, uh, sorry, in the Solomons, to help the Solomons uh, manage its own domestic affairs. And that seems a bit concerning. Um, now, it's true, in times of crisis, the Solomons and other islands have often invited other police forces to come in and assist. But um, this appears to be a sort of unconditional invitation. And my understanding is there are already police from China stationed there when there appears to be no need for them. So the stationing of police is as grave a concern because that, of course, could um, impact on domestic politics in the Solomons. As we know, it's pretty fraught already. And the position of Chinese communities in the Solomons is um, always fairly sensitive. Having police from China seated there can only perhaps inflame tensions. That's what would be concerning me at this point. I don't know enough about the military dimensions. I don't have access to security, you know, intelligence communications. So we can only speculate on that. But you've raised an interesting point there, John. Like, So who exactly did, would these police have uh, authority over? Some, yeah, good question. And who has authority over the police? I mean, the police are ultimately answerable to um, the Chinese Ministry of State Security or Public Security. 
um, which would communicate presumably with the government of the Solomon of the Solomons. But if there is, um, I don't know, some sort of um, you know, public demonstration or concern about Solomon's relations with China, I could imagine those police would be called on, possibly could be called on by the local government with support and uh, authorization from Beijing to get involved. I'm not, I wouldn't want to say that's the most likely outcome, but it's a real possibility and that's a real risk because that could then complicate China in ways it needn't in the domestic politics of the Solomons, which are at the best of times. Uh, pretty murky. Well, uh, perhaps we'll uh, leave speculation for the moment and and dive into into your book, uh, Cadre Country. Now, I got from your book that China is separated into insiders and outsiders. So the insiders are these cadres. Uh, and could you tell us about these people and you know what they are and what they do for the Communist Party? Sure. So this term insiders and outsiders is a phrase used within China, an expression to describe those who are inside the system and enjoy the benefits of being insiders and those who are outside. Being inside the system doesn't mean, uh, it need not imply that you are yourself a cadre, which is to say a bureaucratic representative of the state or the party. Um, You could be somebody who's, you know, inside the system employed in a cushy job in a state enterprise. Um, But jobs like that come to people with connections. So insiders are seen within China as a network of people who who have privileged access to the Communist Party and its decision makers who land the cushy jobs Everyone else is an outsider. I estimate the insiders is around 40 to 40 million, but the Communist Party itself is over 90 million members, so we could extend it to include all Communist Party members. But even if we say, if we said uh, 100 million people, shall we say, have access to the party and, and the privileges that come with it and the responsibilities, I should add, that leaves about 1.3 billion outsiders on the outside. And they refer to themselves as outsiders, people outside the system. Now, this is, is critically important because only people inside the system can actually participate in politics or officially participate in public life, um, and the rest are excluded. And uh, the, the book is built around the assumption that China is a, is a country which has, in effect, become the Communist Party, that the core infrastructure, by which I mean the, the, the institutional infrastructure of the country, its, its local governments, its, its administrative divisions, its, uh, its bureaucracy, uh, is basically the Communist Party and its bureaucracy. And there's no longer a distinction between the country and the party, and the party is, in effect, morphed into China. Um, that means a lot of people who aren't part of the party or part of that network don't really have access to what we would normally think of as, as public life in, in a modern, you know, really highly developed country. I don't know if you've been to China in recent times, but, um, you know, the infrastructure and the, the quality of the, the sort of education facilities is really outstanding, whether you go to a university, to a to a business, to a, an industrial complex, or you take one of the fast trains or you're in one of the thousand planes that are in flight at any time, you can only be impressed by the massive infrastructure uh, that, that is China. So, you know, there are extraordinary achievements the country's made, but my point is that um, a lot of people are locked out of participating in you know, this great country, China. Mm. Well, these these insiders, I'm, I'm interested to know how committed are they to the party ideology? Uh, so the leadership is committed to the ideology, and the ideology is used uh, as a way of, of keeping insiders together. You know, they have to profess allegiance. That's more more professed in the practice than in the belief, I suspect. That is to say, people need, if you're an official, you need to take part in uh, party meetings and profess allegiance to the principles of Xi Jinping's of socialism with Chinese characteristics under the leadership of Xi Jinping and so on. That has to be ritually professed, you know, weekly, if not daily. Um, 
<clears throat> that doesn't mean everybody sort of simply believes all this or, you know, go to the barricades to defend it, but it does mean this ideology holds the system together. I think one of the remarkable things that Xi Jinping has done is rediscover this sort of ideological MO of the Communist Party uh, and return it to a, a point where if you're in it, you've got to believe it, or it's right, you have to profess belief and uh, professing belief ritually perform um, your, I suppose, loyalty to the party and its leadership. At the end of the day, it's about loyalty. John, would you say that the day-to-day operations of the party are carried out by this by the cadres? So um, just to give you a sense of size, there are about, I suppose, 40 million people who are considered cadres. Um, of those, about half are in social service units and they're not on state salaries directly. Rather, they have to generate income. Um, so they're on soft salaries. So they don't really enjoy the benefits uh, of full cadre dissipation. So the, the other half, 20 million or 21 million, sometimes said, would be made up of about 14 million um, who run things and then 7 million who run the party and the government itself. That is its agencies. So somebody running, say, a major hospital or a university would be a cadre. I'd include them in the 14 million, if you see what I mean. They're running something that does something. The other 7 million actually run the party and the government. That is, they uh, oversee one another. They oversee administration of the party and, and the government as a as an organisation, they're they're the ones at the heart of it. And at the top of that, seven million are perhaps no more than a hundred thousand really, really um, powerful senior figures. And among those, perhaps a hundred families um, that exercise more influence than perhaps they should. So we can actually get a good picture of it's starting to become a lot clearer now. This hierarchy of we've got insiders and outsiders. These, these broad. Uh, you know, division in the country itself, but then, you know, we've got the cadres and then within that, that, you know, roughly half. And then we've got, we can actually zero in on, on a rather elite class of, of people that um, are running the show, so to speak, uh, and, and know more than other people and whatnot. So I suppose the next question would be how rife is corruption within that within the system within that group and is there resentment from the populace about this so when xi jinping came to power there's no doubt that corruption was a major major problem and this isn't just a matter of you know people taking money in return for bribes it was collusive corruption that is the whole cadre system or a good part of it was caught up defending other parts of the cadre system from allegations of corruption because it was colluding in the corruption and that really undermined the rationale, the rationale or rationality of the system. So it was no longer possible for senior leadership to command it. This is a command structure. We need to remember that. Um, the hierarchy is a hierarchy of command from the top to the bottom. And at any one level, and there are five levels of administration in China, five local government levels, so to speak, um, each level of ca- the cadres at each level are responsive to the cadres above them at the next level. So if you're in a, a district, you're answerable to the city. If you're in a county, you're answerable to the prefecture. If you're in the prefecture, you're answerable to the, the province. If you're in the province, you're answerable to the centre. And at no one level a cadre is responsive to the communities they govern. There's no horizontal accountability. There's only vertical responsibility. Um, <clears throat> now, why does that matter? Well, as in a command system of this kind, if there's collusive corruption among the cadres, say, across levels between the district and the city or the city and the prefecture or the county and the prefecture, um, that it's impossible really for the centre to, to see its instructions carried out at the local level. They just won't be because people are in it for themselves. And so Xi Jinping on coming to power really tried to 
reinstate the what I consider the organizational rationality of the system to break that collusive corruption. That's one kind of corruption. Um, I'm sure petty corruption continues, but that's that large-scale collusive corruption which threatens really the viability of the command structure. Uh, I, from from the evidence that I've seen, has um, largely been corrected. That said, there's another kind of corruption which is really, um, how should we put it, sort of relational. But it has to do with um, people in privilege in privileged position using their relationships to um, in, ensure that they get their way. And this goes beyond the insiders out to the outside world as well. And at the very, very highest levels of the party, it's clear that the senior party officials like to keep the leadership within the leading families. This isn't so much collusive corruption as, um, how should we put it, um, collusive oligarchy. I mean, the sense that certain families which were responsible for the revolution, and these are the old revolutionary families, and those that joined the, the revolutionary network early in the People's Republic have a responsibility as families to, to maintain their privilege, to maintain their authority over the system so that it doesn't lose sight of its original mission and its original vision and so on. That there's this, this, this group of red heirs of the original leaders who are entitled to rule by virtue of their family connections. And this then excludes everyone else from real political leadership. Now, that kind of family collusion is not tolerated in the general Carter system. So there's a contradiction here. At the very top, um, that sort of oligarchical collusion is considered important to maintaining the leadership of the party itself. But among cadres who are expected to you know, obey instructions coming down the line, they can't afford to be setting up networks with you know, privileged families and so on. So the party is really hostile to that kind of collusion operating at lower levels. So instruction manuals, as I point out in the book, have whole chapters on how, you know, how cadres should manage their wives, how to keep wives out of the business of running a local government and how um, you know, the distaff side um, needs to be kept out. That's not the case at the top. Um, that's a fundamental contradiction, which I suppose distinguishes between real political leadership and the everyday carter. I should add here, by the way, that you know ordinary everyday carters running a local district office or so on have a pretty tough time. Often they're highly, highly idealistic. They're recruited because they've um, come out of one of the top universities and have done very well. They, they really want to do a good job, but they find themselves thrown from pillar to post with um, instructions coming down to do this and that, and then communities coming in to complain that they're not getting what they want. And so the life of a local carter is pretty rough uh, and tough. And in the book, I point out some cases of, um, you know, really traumatic breakdown among local carters trying to manage this horizontal, the lack of horizontal accountability, and yet feeling wedded to their communities, and the top-down hierarchical instructions which which tell them to do things their communities don't want. Is there a way out for, for cadres? Like, if they don't want to be one anymore? Like, uh, is there a, a pathway out? Or, or are, they, are they in it for life? That's a good question. Um, so shortly after Xi Jinping came to power, there was a significant exodus of cadres, middle and lower ranking cadres. They just left, just packed up and walked out, resigned. Now, that's not supposed to happen. And my understanding is it's not happening at the same scale today. But from about, when would it be? Around 2011, 12, 13, 14. Yes, there was a large scale exodus uh, and under Xi Jinping. He's been trying to recruit a new generation of um, loyal and obedient and clean cadres. 
Loyal, obedient, clean and responsible, I think, are the four terms he uses to replace those who left. How successful he's been, we can't be entirely clear. We need to bear in mind, you know, we're very limited information now and what's going on uh, inside the party system within China. Really, at the top level, it's a black box, but even down below, it's it's very, very grey. That box that is the Communist Party and local government is very grey. We can't quite figure out how it's working. Um, how the cadres who are staffing the system are feeling about it all. There's a lockdown in Shanghai at the present time. This may pass, but it's clear that the local administrators are having a really, really tough time. There are reports of suicides um, and of people sort of breaking down and crying over the phone in response to their cons- local people who are rigging them and saying, what can you do to help me? I can't do anything. I'm under instruction. We're, we're getting a sense because it's being revealed in Shanghai in a way that isn't normally uh, a sense of the tension under which local cadres operate. It's pretty intense. Well, I, I like what you said before about, you know, having a, a bit of sympathy or, or rather just trying to understand the plight of, of you know, the average uh, cadre trying to to do their do their job without much support. And, and uh, But let's turn our attention just to that elite class for a second. So uh, you've said in the book that it's their role to preserve power and status of the party. That seems to be their their, their core function. Uh, so I feel like this this set of core ideas is what makes it so hard to get inside the mindset of the regime. Like every system has cynical or or self-interested figures, but the entire system in China, from what I, my limited knowledge is, is operated by a group of people who think that the party should take precedence over truth, the welfare of its citizens in some cases, and, you know, not to be Pollyanna-ish, but doing the right thing. Uh, to, so, you know, for example, to erase the massacre of civilians to protect the image of a political party, to lie so consistently and outrageously is hard to fathom. Now, am I being t- too naive here? Uh, um, how do we bridge this gap in thinking? Because it's it's not really working out, uh, I, I don't think. I think we need to shift from an idea that information, or from the idea of information to communication, that in, in, in China at the present time under the Communist Party, um, there's very little interest in disseminating information, but there's a very clear interest in communicating a message. All information then is strategic. Anything that's coming out in a public statement is intended to serve a purpose. Information itself has no value, if I can put it that way. And we live in a, a society for its strengths and weaknesses where information is the currency of daily life. Um, I'm not just mean at the personal level, but in the public space. The public square is about sharing information, sharing views, um, exposing corruption or telling good stories, whatever it is. That space is missing in China. Now, that's not to say there isn't a very active social media network, but if people were to simply say what they felt or expose something, you know, convey some information that the party doesn't like, that will disappear within a few hours from the system. So the party's job is to suppress information, generally speaking, and to communicate a message designed to reinforce its position, whatever that may be. That varies from time to time. So if we think of the way information operates in China as a, as a massive strategic communication system, we begin to understand how it works. We need to bear in mind this is a huge country. It's not only large, it's highly populous. Uh, it's people are in, you know, incredibly, as, as, as Rowan Kallick pointed out in an earlier interview, is very individualistic. Anybody wanting to manage a country like China would be in difficulty. That said, if you're going to exclude ordinary people from participating in the public life of their own country, it can be even more difficult. So you have to ensure that all communication is strategic, that nothing that gets out fails to serve the purpose of reinforcing the power and status of the Communist Party. That's what it's all about. Now, it's now built the infrastructure 
to ensure that it has that kind of information management, information, the capacity for information control. Um, I talk a little bit about this in the book. I talk in particular about those poor cadres who have to learn about all the massacres and so on that the party's done so that they can suppress information about them. Now, young, you recruit a young cadre fresh out of Tsinghua University who's topped the class for, what, four years of their undergraduate degree, bring them into the Central Propaganda Bureau and then tell them, look, we've got to break a few things. And there really was a massacre. Um, you know, the really corruption was really terrible. Um, this person did that. The other person did the other. Now, you need to know this because the party has rectified its errors now. That's no longer the case. And we must make sure that this information doesn't get out. So, you know, cadres have to know in order to prevent others from knowing. That's one of the complications of the system. It's pretty sophisticated. You know, we've got a flair for the dramatic over here, and it just seems like that is a the, the best film yet to be made. And if China wasn't, you know, so juiced into Hollywood, we would probably see it. We haven't seen a, a film uh, critical of China since Red Corner in the 90s with Richard Gere a long time ago. So That's a good point. I just I don't go into this in the book, but it's worth bearing in mind that there are a lot of comments at the moment on certain, you know, Films coming out of Hollywood modify the titles or change the jacket of a lead actor so it doesn't give offence to people in China. That's true, but that's relatively trivial. If you think about the huge, dramatic history of modern China, how little film record we have of that in the West or in China, it's astonishing how few films have been made about the wonderful, melodramatic political crisis that China's undergone. Where's the Where's the film on the Great Famine? Even a village in the Great Famine. Where's the film on the Cultural Revolution? There's, there are a few documentaries, but there are no really wonderful films that would you know, tell China's, tell, tell what really happened as opposed to um, you know, sitting on it, quashing it, silencing it. So I think Hollywood and the rest of us are pretty complicit in extending this silence over China's modern history. It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty silent history. We know a lot about other countries and their history. Uh, because it's, it's been filmed. You know, Hollywood's been, oh, well, the UK or France, uh, Spain, and the Italians, you know, they're, they've made many films about many places, uh, but there are very, very few films out there about the great moments in Chinese history. And that's what I'd like to see Hollywood get to work on, or the UK, or perhaps Australia. Absolutely. I, I'm, I'm with you there, John. And they could be as... They could be as grand as Dances with Wolves, or as or as uh, as simple as The Bicycle Thieves, you know. That's and right. and imagine him everything in between, and and imagine how rich, uh, you know, it it could be seeing all of that explored. We've got, you know, as you say, I, it just hit me when you said it, like all of that 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 material, uh, human material, just sitting there waiting for someone to have the courage. You won't be able to film it in China, unfortunately. You have to film it in the back lots of somewhere else, but I'm, I'm with you there. Okay, let's go and raise some money and get into <laughs> I mean, the film business. I mean, for sure. Well, just just back on this idea of knowledge here for a second, John. Like, um, so so these cadres that, that they then have to learn about the massacres and the party oppression and all that sort of stuff. But uh, but I'm fascinated to know how are they not more affected by what they know to be true. Do the benefits outweigh the costs of re- revealing this information to a wider audience? Like, like, where are the Chinese Edward Snowdens? Do, do these cadres tell their wives and, and, and friends the truth once they learn it? So it is a closed system. And if you want to enjoy the benefits of it, you must make sure it stays closed. That's the first thing to note. The other is um, it's pretty hard to, so to speak, defect in China. I mean, if you're in China, <laughs> where do you go? That, 
<clears throat> but outside of China, there have been, of course, a great many people who've come out and told stories. I mean, these are dissidents who, for one reason or another, have been allowed out of the country and have then written books and so on. Here in Australia, we had um, a, a consul from the Sydney consulate, Chen Yonglin, um, who uh, defected and basically spilt the beans on uh, the fact that he said that there were, what was it, a thousand sort of Stasi-like people in Australia reporting on Chinese community activists in the country to his consulate. Um, <clears throat> some of these were religious believers, others were political dissidents. Um, you know, he wasn't supposed to say that, and he put his life on the line by doing so. And the Australian government was annoyed at the time that he did, but hey, it happens. Um, but it's, it's, <laughs> it's a risky proposition. I mean, all credit to Mr Chen, I have to say, who should be given, you know, an order of Australia his contribution to this country. Yep. Perhaps we should draft him one. And and is he forever looking over his shoulder? Of course. In the book, you also explore some of the key claims, uh, not just made by the CCP, but but that the entire setup is sort of built on. So perhaps we could just explore a couple. I think these first two people will be quite familiar with. So the first claim is that the CCP has uh, lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. Now, I've seen this factoid print reprinted in best-selling books, TED Talks. I think it's probably taught in schools. So, so, so what's the issue here with this claim? So there's no doubt that hundreds of millions of people in China are no longer as poor as they were. The question is, is the Communist Party responsible for this? Uh, and I argue no, um, that, that China's poverty was largely induced by the Communist Party uh, before the reform era, that the reform era was a phenomenal turnaround on the part of the Communist Party, that it, it lifted the repressive policies which had prevented people from lifting themselves out of poverty. And so the, the two or three chapters I devote to this are about how people did that, how it was that when local carters got off people's backs, um, they were able to get on with their life and go into business or run their farms, raise their families, um, save up money, send them to school, send some of them to Australia and so on. Now, the Communist Party was in power throughout this time. It enabled this to happen by getting out of the way. This is not just at the, the local level among you know, the relatively poor, but it, it, it applies to big corporations as well. Where the Communist Party has got out of the way, China's done well. Where it's intervened, I argue, in business and in, in public life, um, the um, economic growth is generally is relatively retarded. This doesn't apply directly to infrastructure spending. I give all credit to the government for um, its massive infrastructure spending. Around, I, I love the fast rail and so on. But that's a different story from lifting hundreds of millions out of poverty. The Communist Party didn't lift them out, people out of poverty. The people lifted the Communist Party out of poverty. It's now an incredibly wealthy organisation. Its, its, its leaders, certainly during the period of uh, corruption, were immensely wealthy, you know, in the billions of dollars, simply because they were Communist Party members and leading the country. Um, so I argue that the people lifted the Communist Party out of poverty, not the reverse. And the second claim uh, that you bring up is that for foreigners who are wary of China's way of doing politics and business are simply ignorant and prejudiced. Now, this is a charge we hear a lot here in Australia from, uh, this is my, my language, but from the glass-jawed diplomatic class of the uh, Chinese government all the time we hear this. So what's behind uh, these, these accusations? The suggestion there is that Australians are foolish and naive and don't understand China, and if they did, they, they wouldn't be, that the relations between the two countries would be better. I think that's, it's so, so mistaken that it's dangerous. 
mean, the fact is relations between Australia and China were good because Australians were naive. <clears throat> the fact that relations have deteriorated has to do with Australians learning more about the way China operates. China operates here in Australia through its United Front system, United Front Work Department, its intimidation of local communities, its control of local media, local Chinese language media, um, and its, you know, the donations it makes to political parties um, disguised through Chinese business leaders. Australians have sort of woken up to the way China works, and it's it's this awakening, really, that has led to the deterioration in relations, not the reverse. So we've moved uh, in another book I've written recently called Taking the Low Road, a report with Aspie. I argue that Australians have moved from innocence to experience with China. And if, if you do ask people in this country who've been working on China uh, for, what, a decade, two decades, three or four decades, um, you'd... you'd you'd find they're not at all naive and, and had a keen sense of what was good and what was risky about having closer relations with China. Um, had they been asked during our, so to speak, naive period, they might have um, urged greater caution, but they weren't. But Australia has enormous expertise on China. As I argue in the book, you know, we have some of the, really some of the finest journalists have been reporting from China. We have a vast uh, range of a very large range of, of, of specialists in universities who work not just in Chinese politics or economics, but in in health sciences, in um, in housing, in, in um, social investment and philanthropy and so on. Um, now, it's true, they're not always part of the public conversation, but governments draw on that expertise in their own planning and reporting in this country. And I think we'd be wrong to think that the government's been misguided because it's ignorant. I think it's a little better informed than it used to be. The fact that Australia relations, Australia's relations with China are so poor could well be because they were so good. I mean, the, that, the upside was built in naivete, um, so the downside um, could go a little bit far in, in stressing the, um, the, the what the, the downside of the, the 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 more ugly the uglier side of China's behaviour at home and abroad. I wouldn't want to do that either. But I just think we need to find a balance, which is somewhere in between. Mm. Well, you, you mentioned a term there, united front work. And um, so you've written that the CCP engages in in this united front work, which is a form of wedge politics, uh, which is a strategy of exploiting internal divisions among the party's critics. Um, and you've stated that the CCP plays the race card whenever criticism is made against them. Can you explain this united front work a little bit more? So here in Australia, we need to be very mindful of race and racism. We have a history of racism. Our white Australia policy is nothing to be proud of. <clears throat> and the, you know, the occupation and appropriation of Aboriginal lands is something we've yet to come fully to terms with. So Australians need to be mindful of race and racism. That said, the cynical use of the, of the race card uh, also needs to be called out. Now, how the United Front works is like this. The, the, if we go back to how China works, the United Front Work Department wasn't invented for Australia. It wasn't invented for countries overseas or for Chinese communities overseas. It was invented for China. It's the way in which the Communist Party allies itself with potential allies in order to overcome its so-called enemies, its nominated enemy at any point in time. So it joined the United Front with the, the Nationalist Party in China to oppose the Japanese during the Japanese occupation from 1937 or 1931 through to 1945. That was a domestic matter. After the Communist Party came to power, it formed a united front with 
um, the former business elites and so on of China um, who remain behind. Um, some it expropriated and some it executed, but others it incorporated into itself through the United Front Work Department. Um, so I argue that this is a way of, that insiders, that is the cadres within the party, make honorary insiders of outsiders because business people are, you know, historically were outsiders outside the party framework, but they can be technically brought in through the United Front Department. Now, if someone's working with the United Front Work Department or someone's brought in through it, they're not communists. That's the whole point. Um, there's a communist party that runs the show that has transformed China into itself and then it, it incorporates people outside itself, some outsiders, into its inner, in, it brings them into its inner sanctum through the United Front Work Department and enabling them to so-called participate in politics, they call it Tanjung. Only a few people are invited to do this. They're these elites that they want to bring on board to overcome their enemies. Now, transposed to a foreign country like Australia, that means that um, United Front Work Department operative in a consulate or in the embassy would work with often Chinese, that is resident Chinese nationals who are wealthy uh, in order to um, encourage them to do the work of the embassy in the community. That is to help uh, build new community associations which are loyal to the embassy or consulate to um, run newspapers uh, or online media which are loyal to Xi Jinping and so on. And so it comes here rather late in the day as the Communist Party's way of dealing with non-communists in the Chinese-Australian community. The United Front Work Department does not work with whitey. This doesn't, on the whole. Um, it, it's within China, it's Chinese citizens. Outside China, it's people of Chinese descent. How whitey gets involved <coughs> is usually through the PLAs, the People's Liberation Army's uh, liaison department or another section. Um, of the party that's, that that um, deals with what they consider mainstream elements of a community, not the minority Chinese community. And so the way that the system's set up is organised around race within China. You know, the United Front Work Department works with Chinese overseas um, and other departments work with others. So that sort of ethnic distinction in the operational MO of the Communist Party. Um, <laughs> sort of exacerbates questions of ethnic tension, or could exacerbate ethnic tensions in other communities, because it's working exclusively with the Chinese community in Australia, the work department, to generate support for itself, and then working through other agencies to, to work with mainstream political parties and business leaders to generate support. Um, so the question you were asking, I suppose I've drifted a bit away. The question was, um, what part does the race card play in all this? Well, it knows that Australia, the United Front Work Department, the Chinese Communist Leadership, knows that Australia is highly sensitive to issues of race, as it should be, um, and it will use whatever vulnerability it finds. That's one of them. We need to be mindful to tackle racism wherever it emerges and at the same time uh, identify the race card where it's being used and dismiss it out of hand as a cynical ploy intended to drive a wedge into Australian public life. Yes, this is very important. We're trying to get this this point across to our listeners that um, now, as you say, balance is important and, you know, racism is racism. And, and tit for tat is not an ideal strategy. However, it seems that the imbalance here is quite striking because, and I, so upon the next histrionic howl of racism, in order to stop the cycle, can't we just simply plant our feet and, you know, particularly the, polit the political class, you know, because I say we, uh, uh, plant, plant our feet and point out that being criticised on race by 
a strident in sometimes what could be described an ethno state uh, is a little tough to take. And I even have a follow up. We could say, yes, our past is filled with tragic and bloody stains that we're working through. Uh, thankfully, that's our past. And in areas of China, it's the present. Well, I think you're quite right. That second statement is a very powerful one. <clears throat> the fact is, Australia, as a liberal democracy, works through in a pluralist ways. It's, you know, it's historical issues. Um, and every part of the community has an equal right to participate in that, including aggrieved Indigenous communities, Asian Australian communities, which may feel they have a case. They have a right to state that publicly and they should be supported in every way. And the more we endorse that and the more publicly we state that, the better position we are related to China, where it's not possible for minority communities to complain, for example, that their language is being eliminated uh, or that their communities are being uh, forcibly locked away, families separated. It's, it's really not possible legitimately to protest. Any protest is seen as seditious and subversive of the Communist Party, Communist Party state. Now, that argument might go down well in the political class. I'm, I'm not quite sure it persuades anyone outside, but it is very important to draw this distinction. Certainly China's drawing the distinction. It sees, the, it sees itself engaged in a battle between systems, its system, um, which it considers, what does it call it, comprehensive democratic system and liberal democracy, um, which is what we're laboured with. Mm, well, these these claims that get, get thrown at, at Australia from uh, the CCP, these claims of racism, they're not widely challenged in this country. Now, why aren't any Australian politicians pushing back on these claims of racism? Um Politicians. Okay. Maybe it's not the role of politicians because where the claims do come from China, they're not coming from politicians. They're coming from pretty outrageous media outlets like Global Times or, you know, an academic or commentator in some think tank in Beijing. I think that's the level at which we should address it. It really perhaps shouldn't be elevated to the political level. Uh, it's really just a part of a, a campaign of public abuse of Australia uh, within China at the present time, because a whole lot of people are aggrieved, they've been disappointed that Australia is not as naive as it once was in dealing with China. Um, we could name some people, we shan't here, who've been very prominent in China. The other thing is that the Global Times draws extensively on Australians to make these comments. If you read, you know, the latest comments uh, in Global Times on racism in Australia, they're mostly by Australians who are being quoted there. Um, good on them. But what's that telling us? It's telling us that Australia is a free and liberal society in which anyone can say what they please, even in China, even to attack their own country. Hey, China. Yeah. <clears throat> um, let's see people here of Chinese descent, public, or anyone published in the Global Times, criticisms of China. It's not going to make it. They won't publish. You know, we're dealing... It's, it's, it's not as if this is amenable to rational solution by intelligent people sitting down having a conversation. It's not. All communication in China is strategic. That's not the way we work. Um, we might try and target a bit of strategic information uh, against that, but I don't think we'd get very far because we're in a, a rich information environment here in which everything is contested. The environment within which strategic communications are made in China is non-contestable. Only a certain view can be stated. Anyone who says anything else will be locked up. Let's be clear. That being the case, we can't really expect to have an open, uh, you know, civil conversation on any subject. Well, perhaps, uh, but just before we leave the the, the political class, uh, thankfully behind, just to just to to finish off uh, there, you know, for many years, 
we've had former politicians and or or their like wandering the land, telling us of the great achievements of the party. Some of them very celebrated figures, and to to myself especially, some of them I, I you know I've been very very disappointed <laughs> by some of the stuff. So we've heard about and and Ricky and I grew up uh, being told you know pivot towards asia the uh you know the asian century it was we've heard a lot about this over the time that we need to you know be uh perhaps you know pivoting away from some of our previous allies and moving wholly towards towards china now uh, just on on these these wandering um figures has this what i'll call cash for comment type of arrangement been shut down um, and I believe in forgiveness and redemption, but surely we have to pull some of these blokes into line. Uh, yeah, I won't, I won't go near the cash for comment uh, remark there. There may be some. That's my words, John. Don't <laughs> worry. They can come for me. Okay. Thanks, John. Um, I, I just make the broader point. Some of the people you're alluding to, I think, make the claim that Australia is turning away from Asia and going back to its traditional alliances. What a shame. We've spent 30, 40 years heading towards Asia and we're moving away. That's bunkum. Sorry, the conversation of, with, about China is not about Asia. It's about China. Um, we're closer to Japan than we have been probably in decades on this issue. We're far closer to India. Uh, the Singaporean government's in very close uh, conversation with Australia on China. So is Vietnam. We weren't in the past. No, we, we're not retreating from Asia. We're finding a few a new way of dealing with the complexity of Asia um, because it's not one place. It's a, like Europe. It's a, it's a diverse community of countries, community societies, languages and cultures and what have you. So we're not retreating from Asia at all. Um, the particular, the comments that are often made about China strike me these days as fairly sad. That is, had they been said 20 years ago, I'd be inclined to believe them. China was on a reform agenda. It really was moving closer towards rule of law, closer towards greater academic freedoms. Um, journalists enjoyed far more freedom than they did under Xi Jinping to comment on, say, economic crimes. Um, there was a, an active online media uh, community which could, you know, was getting away with it. It wasn't censored every day. It said what it thought. And it was, you know, China was moving in a reform direction. Xi Jinping came in, well, not just Xi Jinping, before him there the last years of the Hu Jintao administration, really began to close that down. We're in the post-reform era. We have been since Xi Jinping came to power. And the fact that leading Australian public figures, particularly since 2011, 2012, 2013, when Xi Jinping emerged, um, continue to stand up and say, you know, Communist Party lifted everyone out of poverty and it's the greatest government in, in the world in the last 30 years, etc. You know, that was a bit late. You can't <laughs> you could have said that. During the reform era, you can't say it any longer. China's in a, on a backward trajectory. Uh, pretty well, um, every new initiative taken by the Xi Jinping government is counter-reform. It's anti-reformation, so to speak. <clears throat> um, and there are very few, you know, to start with universities. I mean, the attack on, uh, on historical scholarship is appalling. I'm a historian myself and have worked for since I went to China in the 70s. As an historian, I studied history. I worked with historians at some of the best universities in the country. They're all silenced now, effectively. We don't notice that because they're not speaking. But um, 
great silence is defended on China's history. As the party says now, there's just one clear historical line of Chinese history, and it leads to us running the place. So everyone else get out of the way and shut up. Now, that's not how history works. History, as here in Australia and everywhere, is a contested space. Um, the Communist Party got to power for all sorts of reasons, some contingent, some structural, um, some long-term, some short-term. Um, <clears throat> it's not just history either. I mean, the media was largely shut down. Um, civil society, uh, which was very, very vibrant, I mean, it was developing at least in a vibrant way before Xi Jinping became power, it was largely d- diminished. The party has inserted itself into every single institution in the country. Uh, even those which had, which were set up outside the party, among by outsiders, they're now been, in effect, drawn in through party secretariats being set up within them. So it's a bit late, I suppose. That's why I consider it sad that people should be coming out now and making these claims when they're about 10, 12 years too late. Now, you've, you've written a paper titled Mind Your Tongue, Language, Public Diplomacy and Community Cohesion in, a, in Contemporary Australia. Uh, and this paper outlines the problems in talking about China and the need to distinguish between the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, uh, Chinese citizens and Chinese Australians. Uh, perhaps you could outline for our audience why it's in Australia's interest to be careful to make these clear distinctions. Sure. Um, that paper is freely available online, by the way, and um, so I, if I get a bit muddled here, people can refer to that for a more concise statement of the argument. Um, <clears throat> this paper was drafted really at the invitation of the Australian Strategic Policy Institute because people there who are concerned, you know, are very active players in the Australia-China debate, were concerned that racism should be addressed as an issue before it got out of hand. There was a real risk that um, you know, far-right elements in Australia or others might um, pick up the anti-China or the concerns about China and the Chinese Communist Party and what it was doing in the South China Sea and so on and run an anti-Chinese racist card on that within Australia, a very real fear. And so ASPE asked me to come aboard and, and write a paper to address this, and that's what that paper tries to do. It says, look, we've got a serious problem here. We've got a problem with China. We've got a problem with China's expansion Particularly, it, it's, it, was, it was beginning, as you might recall, to um, to build fortifications on rocky outcrops in the South China Sea in contested areas. In fact, to claim vast areas of sea, which no country has right to claim, uh, and saying that these are historically grounded, blah, blah, blah. Um, it was total nonsense. So to address those issues and the challenge that China presented uh, to the region without at the same time becoming anti-Chinese, that was the crap. That was the, that was the challenge. Now, serious people you know, in the political class are uh, unlikely to allow racism to play any part in their analysis of what's happening in China and their, their advice on how to deal with it. But in the broader community, it's quite possible that it could have you know, tapped into anti-Chinese as opposed to anti-China sources. And so uh, the, the, the political class, shall we say, that part of it most concerned about China was concerned that um, Australia's historical racism should have no part in this conversation. And I have to say, um, I, I've been pretty impressed. I know a lot of people have said, you know, there's racism has raised its head, particularly during COVID, and there may be some ground for that. But that's a separate story, and that's not just anti-Chinese, that's anti-Asian in some respects, because anyone who looks vaguely Chinese can be, attract, can be attacked in a drunken brawl on a Friday night, and that seems to be the sort of extent of it. But I have sympathy and concerned for all Asian Australians who might suffer as a result of COVID here in Australia. Um, but 
so long as I, I, I think we keep this issue in the public domain, so long as we remain alert to racism raising its head and and tackle it directly in this country, uh, I think that's more important than tackling claims from China about Australian racism, if I may say. I mean, there's a real risk here. Where we see it, we need to take it on board, not wait for the Global Times to tell us we're racist. And, and I think on the whole, Australia's done a pretty good job in that respect, um, that it's not really allowed to get out of hand. I, I might add here that Clive Hamilton's uh, book, which came out in 2018, um, <clears throat> it was very, very clear that it was a directing its arguments around China's influence and interference operations in Australia, not against Chinese Australians. I think it was very important that he wrote that, a former Green Party member, um, <clears throat> because there are others who might have written a book like that which have, would have had a very, very different tone. And um, all credit to Clive. Yes, his, his book certainly gave me the first uh, 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 jolt when I read those books. And, and I think he's exactly the distinction you made about him. Uh, it framed, framed it in a way that, that, you know, we could start to get a purchase on what was going on without it drifting into the, those, those, that racism. Yeah. D does simple English to Chinese translation ever cause trouble uh, diplomatically? Good question. So in, in that paper, I point out that um, when we say Chinese, we mean any number of things, whereas in the Chinese language, there's a different word for pretty well every one of them, like a Chinese person is a different expression for Chinese. Um, Chinese culture, there's a different expression again. Chinese food, a different expression. You know, so um, when we use the word Chinese, we need, really need to be mindful of what we're talking about. The one recommendation I make is we never use the word Chinese by itself. Always say what we mean. That is Chinese people, Chinese Communist Party, Chinese, it's just an adjective. It should never be seen as a noun because it could mean anything and be misinterpreted. Because once it's translated back into Chinese from English, as the Global Times is inclined to do, they can use anything. Uh, they like to translate that to reflect poorly on Australia, where it may not have been the intent of the user. So the word Chinese should be an adjective. It's a Chinese you know, roast duck. It's a Chinese flower arrangement. It's a Chinese battleship. It's not just Chinese. So just to, uh, to pivot onto uh, social media for a second, uh, one of the recommendations you suggest in the paper is that politicians and political parties, we're back to politics again, I thought we were getting away from this. <laughs> Sorry, John. Uh, should refrain from using Chinese-based uh, so, uh, social media platforms that do not permit uh, free and respectful discussion of fundamental political issues. And we've seen that big tech has a blind spot when it comes to China. Uh, or at least it has in the past, and in some cases have done the bidding of the party to censor information or throttle their services. So what can we do when the profit motive shuts down criticism of human rights violations, for example, online? Yeah, the business model of social media is really problematic in so many respects, not just in relation to these issues, human rights or China. And, um, I mean, just, I mean, I don't know how sensitive we are to timing here, but just yesterday, um, I was going to say WeChat, uh, WhatsApp. No, not WhatsApp, sorry. Oh, I'm getting confused here. Uh, oh, yes, Elon Musk, right, has, has just, um, so there's a new private entrepreneur just moved in and taken over a major um, social media platform. Now, the question is arising, you know, Elon Musk has huge business investments in China. That platform is not available in China. I mean, people can't use it. 
Chinese people could use it overseas to attack. That the Chinese government can use it internationally, but um, people in China can't read it. Where are we going with that? I just put that as a question out there. I'm not the first to ask it. But here in Australia, it plays into election politics. And right now, of course, we're in the middle of um, an election campaign. And the question arises whether the Chinese social Chinese language uh, social media uh, platform WeChat should be used by political candidates. Now, interestingly, the most controversial of those candidates, the Liberal Party's Gladys Liu, has said she's not going to use WeChat. She thinks it's inappropriate. Could I say all credit to her? I too think it's highly inappropriate, and I think she's made the right judgment call. I'm not sure that her opponent has made that call, and I'd be interested to know. But the, the fact is that WeChat, like all social media based in China, um, place limits around what can and can't be said. And so conversations here in Australia around an election are policed within China. That is bizarre. Uh, the fact that there might be some political advantage for one party or another to use it seems to me to count for very little alongside the graver threat to our democracy as a system by having conversations within this country in the Chinese language policed by Beijing over an election, which is at the core of what makes us a liberal democracy. I've got a question here on trade for you. Um, how can we engage in fruitful trade and put politics aside, so to speak, when when the party is so intertwined with every business and organisation in China? Isn't there a party representative in, in every workplace? There is. I should On trade, I don't think there should be the issues that there are. <clears throat> I mean, Australia was trading with China before we had diplomatic relations. Now, China was a major wheat importer from Australia in the 60s when we didn't recognise it. Um, Australian governments have rarely had any difficulty trading with countries around the world, nor should they. I think investment's another matter. Investment involves trust. It involves making a judgment about whether long-term this sum of money or this, this asset um, is secure and will generate income over time. That's one matter. And people in China might be wary of investing in Australia and Australians in China. That's another matter. But, but, but trade um, conducted on an equal and level playing field as far as possible um, has to be a good thing for all concerned, in my judgment. So where we have difficulties with trade with China are at the China end. It's, it's that China, because it's not because there are party offices in every firm, but because the central government has decided it wants to punish China, punish Australia for certain political grievances, um, has decided to limit imports on a, you know, a large range of products, which really do affect uh, many Australian regional communities. Um, but that's a political decision on China's part to intervene in trade. Now, it's true that Australia placed limits on investment, but those investments limits are um, perfectly reasonable. I mean, it's, trade and investment are different. One involves trust, the other involves an exchange. And I, I think trade is perfectly legit as far as possible, as much as possible. That investment as much as possible, but consistent with national security concerns. That applies to China. That applies equally to Australia. Well, it seems what Australia lacks is not expertise in China, but but perhaps muscle memory for, for grappling with a Lenin, Leninist party state. Uh, can we get you to expand on this? Yes, I make that claim in the introduction because it's often said that Australia's faulty, uh, faulting relations with China are due to ignorance on Australia's part. And if only we knew better, 
uh, about China's history and culture and what have you, we wouldn't make so many mistakes. I argue that's not the case, that Australians are pretty cluey about China, that what we don't seem to appreciate is that the Communist Party as an organisation and as an ideology is back. That Xi Jinping has rediscovered the MO of China's Communist Party, that the Communist Party, its organisation, its ideology, its way of doing things, its priority, its status within the country, are all that matters in China at the moment. Not its history, not its culture, not the rest. History and culture are just grounds for the Communist Party to assert its confidence in its own system. Um, they have no merit in their own right, as far as Xi Jinping is concerned. Um, so my, my point was to say, well, if Australia has problems with China, it's, it's not because we're ignorant of China, it's because we've forgotten what it's like to deal with the Communist Party state. Uh, and we were familiar with that during the Cold War, and that's a memory that we need to revive. Well, John, perhaps we could wrap up with, with just a couple of big sky questions, which, you know, uh, you can uh, try and grapple with. So why should someone listening to this, you know, perhaps Gen Z or, or millennial, uh, why should they care about the situation in China or, or the Chinese Communist Party and what they're doing for that matter? Uh, that is a good question. Now, they should share about Australia-China relations because that has bearing on our communities, it has bearing on our trade, investment, and bearing on our welfare, bearing on our security. But why care about China? Well, I'd say because the way China works, what it is and uh, what their priorities are, the, the priorities of the leadership are, has bearing on the Australia-China relationship, has bearing on our prosperity, on our security and everything else. So just to look at the security or prosperity issues without regard to how China works and why this is happening is in a way to miss the point, to see to see the small picture, not the big picture. And so in the book, which I, I set it out in sort of, I don't know, 10 or 15 very short chapters, um, which try to be sort of sharp and short <clears throat> around what the issues are that's driving China at the present time, how the Communist Party is thinking, what the internal tensions are, um, how the claims that are often made for China by our you know, former retired senior leaders are open to question and, and, and to challenge them. Because I think unless we understand how China works, we're not going to be able to figure out what China's next steps will be in the South China Sea or in the Solomon's Islands uh, or in relation to trade and investment in Australia. It's all one big picture. China at home is China abroad. If you want to understand China abroad, learn more about China at home. And this is a very crude question from someone grappling with the state of play. But it's one that comes up, and I'm 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 sure it's in in people's quiet moments when they think about China, they have the same simple question with no time frame on it. Is it is it a fantasy to believe that the that the China the Chinese citizens will be liberated from this regime? So in the book, I argue that the reform momentum in China was massive. That there's a hunger for reform in China that it's a highly liberalised society, a highly sophisticated society, in many ways a wealthy one. The Communist Party is denying ordinary people the right to participate in their own country's public life. I think that, I'm not sure it builds up you know, a pressure cooker of resentment, I doubt it somehow. Um, nevertheless, there's an anomaly, I try to suggest, that the party's trying to revert to a Maoist or Stalinist style of leadership over a highly liberalised highly sophisticated, increasingly wealthy community is an anomaly which cannot go on forever. There's a, a drive for reform. I doubt that the party will be overthrown. I don't think so. 
but I think there's a reform elite, or there was, a reforming element within the elite which recognises this contradiction and would like to resolve it. That would mean taking power away from the few privileged families that believe they govern China by right because they led the revolution. That's the crooks of the matter. They're the ones that are running it at the moment. Um, there are others in China, again, some of them, many of them, loyal party members, who think everyone should have an equal right to participate in public life and everyone should have an equal right to compete for leadership. That's not currently the case. Um, so if, if things are to change, I think it's likely to be from within the system rather than from without. It's from the carders rather than from the people alone. Are you optimistic that that, that would happen at, at some stage? Okay, so we're in a very volatile international environment at the present time, uh, both in Russia, you know, with Russia and Ukraine, with other issues um, surrounding membership of NATO, um, with the United States really you know, troubled, if not failed. Well, the United States is a highly troubled state. So what happens in China will, in part, be dependent on what happens outside of China. Um, but if it were left to China alone in a stable international environment, yes, I'd be very optimistic. Well, we're mindful of time here, John. So uh, perhaps one last question. We, we like to ask all of our guests uh, this this question to end. And uh, what are you reading at the moment? Ah, good. Uh, I'm reading a <coughs> spy novels, and, and I'm reading a, a wonderful new book called Getting China Wrong by Aaron Friedberg, um, which is about to hit Australia's stores. Um, Professor Friedberg is at, I think, at Princeton University, and he's written a book on where we need to go now in relations with China. That is, he's writing from a United States perspective, which is quite different from Australia's, but there's much to learn from that book. And, well, you need to come clean about the spy novels as well. Come on, you can't, you, is it, are we talking Le Car? What are we talking here, John? Come on. Yeah, a bit of old Le Car, Le Carre, yeah. whatever. Yeah. Wonderful. I think your pronunciation was better than mine. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, thank you so much, John, for uh, coming on the show. Um, are you are you on social media? Can people follow you? <laughs> no, not really. No, I'm too old for that. <laughs> well, what they should do is is read your book, Cadre Country, and which they can get from well anywhere that you get books, uh, electronic or otherwise. And I encourage them, uh, everyone to do that. And just one last thing on that book: people need to read it because you know not only is it great uh, historical information, but it is very very up to date this is brand new and and so you really do need to it's so refreshing to read it and just to, i felt like oh wow this is this moment like you know right now and uh, and i think that's that's a real strength of, of, of the book thanks john uh, and thanks for being so generous with your time john <laughs> thank you Nikki. thanks john